for a few minutes here. Romans chapter 6, and if you will look please at verse number 15 through 18. Romans chapter 6. By the way, I, I don't know what happened to me last week. I preached uh, the message and then I finished early. You remember that? I was a few minutes. I mean, it may not have been many, but it was a few minutes early, remember? And we slipped out of here to get something to eat. And you know we had to stand in line forever? And a man from another church, many of you know him, Mr. Dale Mitchell, he walked up to me and said, asked me about, did I preach long or something? And I, I told him, no, I said, I thought I preached shorter. And I'm getting in stand in line longer. So the obvious thing ought to be, if I preach longer, we stand in line less, right? But anyway, here's the deal. He told me, he said, do you think they'd pay you more if you preach less? I said, absolutely. I could be a rich man if I just wouldn't preach as much. He said, that's what they try to do with his preacher. <laughs> but anyway, it won't be long. I promise I will hurry. But this is God's word, and let's absorb it correctly, rightly, and give it the due respect that it's, it's due and always earns by its own virtue. Here in chapter 6, verse 15, the Bible says, What then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. So read Romans 6 verses 15 through 18. Here is an his, a historical fact. Listen. One bleak day in February of 1832, a young theological student sat in, in his room at Andover Seminary. His name, Samuel Francis Smith. He was going over a sheet of, of German songs for children given to him by a friend. The composer was Loyal Mason. Sunset shadows crept into the room and Smith was tired from a strenuous day of study he was relieved to spend a few relaxing moments going over his friend's music. As he hummed over one after another, one struck his fancy. He glanced at the words of the page, and his knowledge of the German language told him that the words were patriotic, but they did not appeal to him. He decided to write his own words. He searched around on his desk until he found a scrap of paper about five or six inches long two and one half inches wide, and on this, as he tapped out the rhythm of the music, he began to write the words, My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. That's a historical fact. But here's a sad reality. A global survey of political and civil liberties indicates that personal freedom diminished in the 1970s for 85 million people in seven countries. The assessment was made by the Freedom House of New York City, a nonprofit organization that rates nations as free, partly free, or not free. 66 countries with 42% of the world's population were termed not free. The survey listed 1% fewer people in the free category this year 
than the previous year. And here's a practical fact. Even vast numbers of people who live in America and all these so-called free countries of the world are not really free. You draw that conclusion and it grows out of the truth that's before us in Romans chapter 6. I call your attention to Romans chapter 6 and verse number 15. Paul wrote it. He starts with a question. In verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. You see, in verse number 1, Paul asked this question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The issue in verse 1 was continuing in sin. And the issue in verse number 15 of Romans chapter 6 is an occasional return to sin. That is, if you sin sometimes along the way. And the answer in both cases is, God forbid. May it never be so. Must ever keep before you that the very essence of sin is the desire for independence, to have what we call self-rule. That is, for no one to tell you what to do. That's what sin is. Sin is an attitude of the heart that wants absolute independence from everything else and everybody else and wants to be its own ruler at all times. Paul is going to point out in this section that we're studying for today that everyone is a servant to a master. Everybody is. Everybody in this room, no exceptions and no exclusions, everybody in this room is a servant to a master. And the issue, a slave to someone or a slave to something. He also, what Christ taught, he will teach. And that is very simply what you find in Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 24, which says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The principle of the verse is very simply, it is not possible for a person to have two masters. It's impossible. can't happen. Man cannot make that happen. I was reading this week, which I do not usually do, but I ran across a dear Abbey. And it says, girl better off without boy. And if I'd stopped there, that would have been a bad thing. huh? Girl better off without boy, but then adds, who drinks too much. Then I agree. Dear Abby, I've been seeing Gil for a little over seven months. I love him, but he drinks a lot. A couple of nights ago, he called me roaring drunk. I told him he needed to stop drinking. He swore that he would quit and asked me how long I wanted him to stop for. Dumb, dumb, dumb. But anyway... And he said, I asked him to stop for one month. Dumb, dumb, dumb. I told them if he drank during the 30 days, I'd break up with him. Last paragraph. Now Gil says, you could expect this, right? Now Gil says that the promise he made doesn't count because he was drawing drunk. He says he would never have made such a promise if he'd been sober. Don't you love this guy? just honest as he can be, but just as much a slave as any man has ever been a slave. He told me, he told me he could quit for a month if he wanted to. Boy, have you ever heard that before? I quit anytime I want to. I don't, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm not hooked on these drugs. I'm not hooked on cigarettes. I'm not hooked on booze. I can quit anytime I want to. Yeah, right. You don't understand a biblical principle. You cannot serve two masters. It's either one or the other. 
And in Gil's case, he says, no, I, I, if, I'd, if I'd have been sober, I wouldn't have said that, but I can quit anytime I want to. And she asked, dear Abby, should I keep my word and end the relationship if he drinks? He's only 17 years old. And I don't want him to run or ruin his future. Dear Abby gives her usual non-Christian, non-biblical answer. Dear Sad, he may be only 17, but your boyfriend is already a problem drinker. He may care for you, but it appears he loves his alcohol more. Much as you might wish to, you cannot save another person. You can only save yourself. If you're as intelligent as I think you are, you'll keep your word and end the romance so you won't ruin your future. Interesting thing, but the fact of the matter is, what that points up and points up so clearly is the very issue on the table this morning. And that is that people are slaves to sin. When you meet someone who does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, you're looking at a slave to sin. And the need is for that person to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and change. Everyone either has Christ as their master or Satan as their master, but they cannot have both at the same time. When I was growing up in Tennessee, I heard it more than once, a theological error. When people would say, oh, Mr. So-and-so, he serves the devil through the week, but he serves God on Sunday. Oh, no, he doesn't. Oh, no, he doesn't. You can't serve two masters. You're either serving one or the other. And in each of those cases, those people they referred to were people who did some things they knew were wrong and illegal through the week. But on Sunday, that guy would lead the services at the church. How absurd, how reproachful, how hypocritical, and how absolutely unscriptural. But the fact of the matter is, they were wrong about the theological truth of what Christ said. You cannot serve two masters. You're either master, you're either serving the master of sin, or you're serving the master of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in this case and in this text, there's a key word. You need to look for it. It begins in verse 15 where he says, What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? God forbid. And then you go, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, and here's the word, servants. You'll find it from verses 15 through 23. You'll find the word servant eight times at least. It is in this context that this word is translated from the Greek word doulos. It really is slave. That's interesting because Paul, when he started out the introduction to Romans chapter 1, he talked about Paul, a doulos of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ. And I say this to you, that in this context, that's the whole passage of what Paul is going to be dealing with is whose slave are you? Whose servant are you this morning? You are a servant. You are a slave to something or someone. Now the issue is who or what? And I say to you something that I read a few weeks ago about an author who, book I have in my library, he, he wrote this. He says, as a pastor in California, I was walking down one of the streets of our city, and he named the city, and he said, I saw a man coming forward toward me. He was carrying a sign, a front and back kind of sign that hung across his shoulders. As he got closer, I noticed the sign read, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. In California, you'd expect signs and maybe some nut kind of thing, but that's interesting. He says, this sign read, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. When the man passed me by and got beyond me, I turned to look backward at him. And when I did, I noticed the sign on the back of him said, and whose servant or slave are you? Whose slave are you? And may I say that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is coming to in this text of Scripture. The bottom line truth in this section of what Paul will lay before you and me is simply to be a slave of Jesus Christ is to be free indeed. That's what he's going to come to. If you are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, this passage of Scripture says that's to really know freedom. 
There is no freedom in this country apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, you might be able to go to the store and drive across state lines anytime you want to, but when the Bible speaks about freedom, it's talking about something that's not just present but future also. Talking about a kind of freedom that is all-encompassing and, in essence, eternal. When a person comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is set free from his sin. But he's also set on a course, a course of freedom that absolutely fulfills the innermost longings of mankind. And may I say to you, that's why some people, I believe with all of my heart, though they are not aware of it, though they're not aware of it, why some people will kill themselves to get to America. There is a freedom in America that goes beyond just being able to go wherever you want to go when you want to go. There's a freedom here, and that freedom is the holy light that we sing about in some of our patriotic songs that illuminates from God Himself. It's a freedom that's only possible for those people who have come to face to face with their sin and their slavery, and they've confessed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are now eternally free. This passage of Scripture, look again at the text. In verse 15, the ideal that some uh, evidently put to Paul was that God's grace is a, a license to sin. That's what the question is all about, verse 15. What then shall we sin because we're not under law? If there's no law, can we just go out and do what we want to do? Can we, do we have a license to go sin? And obviously Paul's answer is God forbid that his ideal is the very purpose of God's grace is to break the, that, that chain of slavery and bondage on man regarding his sin. Christ came into this world to die for sinners. Why? Because they were in bondage to their sin. And the grace of God is what brought the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, Know ye not that to whom, to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Something they uh, should have known, and that's why you read that word, Know ye not. Paul is saying to these people, You know this. You should know this. Don't you understand? Don't you embrace this fact? So here Paul under inspiration is saying, if we start to obey sin's desires, sin's lust, even a little bit, we're actually opening a door for the mastery of sin to take over the throne of our life again. That's what the verse teaches. Now listen, I don't mean to be unkind, but even a stupid drug addict knows this truth. I mean, anybody takes drugs is absolutely brainless, it seems. To know where they lead and what they do and to continue to do it, you know something has to be over their minds. And it is. They're slaves of sin. Their master is the devil himself. And listen to this. This is a scenario. As I wrote this down, I'm convinced this is true. This is about a drug addict. Here's the way it plays out. You have a young businessman who is in a what I call the pressure cooker of, of having to produce in order to get his paycheck at the end of the week. So under this great pressure cooker of work, he is under such stress, he decides to take some mild drugs. So he takes the mild drugs to handle the pressure and the problems of his job. However, the pressure continues and in fact gets worse. And so he decides that he needs something a little bit stronger, something a little more potent. He needs more. And so eventually one drug leads to another drug, and then another drug leads to another drug, and then finally ends up on some back alley street in a city trying to find crack. And then he sells his soul for a bag of heroin. Oh, and did I mention, did I mention 
Had he lost his good job in this drug-crazed journey? Did I also mention that he lost his wife and his children? Did I also mention he lost his self-respect and now he's what we call a wino on the street, begging drugs from anybody who'll give them to him? You see, it's a, a thing that if he continues to serve that same master, he won't only have given up his job, his wife, his children, and his self-respect. One day he'll give up his very breathing ability. He will die in an alley on a street. I remember years ago when Judy and Dan's father was alive and he was uh, preaching at the jail, and I remember being there with him one Sunday morning. And I never shall forget a man who stepped up to the bars when the messages were completed and and as I had preached and they began to do personal work to these prisoners and they were about 125 prisoners in this jail block and those men came up to those cells and I remember one man specifically speaking to Mr. Carter. Mr. Carter stuck his hand through the, the uh, bars with a track in it and handed it to this man. This man came closer and he grabbed Mr. Carter's hand and he held it for just a moment and he began to weep and he said, I used to be a lawyer in Chicago. I was I was at the top of my game. I had everything I'd ever wanted. But I thought I had to have booze. And I had to have more. And I had to have more. And I had to have more. And let me tell you, the morning I saw that man standing behind those bars in that jail cell in Marion County Jail, when I looked at him, that guy was in rags. And for this man to one day have been a man, a professional, in a position of a lawyer, to be able to do and to, to contribute to the lives, the helps of people, and to see him there, I said to myself, what in the world brought this man down? I can tell you, he was a slave to sin. And sin is no good master, and Satan will make dead sure that he ruins your life because, remember, he's a liar and a murderer. And he'll do whatever he can to get you off the scene so that there'll be no hope of you being right with God. You listen to this and you listen to this good. Yielding to a little sin means eventually control of your life by that little sin. So what Paul is getting at here in chapter 6 and verse number 15 is he's saying don't sin at all. <laughs> Don't sin at all, because if you sin at all, that one little sin may, may open you up, may make it possible for sin to grab a hold of you and control your life again, and then sin will take that position of throneship, leadership, lordship in your life, and he will absolutely ruin your life. So Paul says, don't even consider a sin. Don't, over here in verse 1, it was about continuing in sin, continuous sin. Here it's only occasional sin when he was speaks about it being something you'd walk into. He said, don't even get into, don't let the devil talk you into that. Don't do any of that. It's the nature of sin. It's the nature of sin. And what sin does, it gets a hold on a person, and then that sin, little sin, turns these people into slaves. Interesting, too. Believers in a Christian who, a person who's come to faith in Christ, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's delivered from the slavery of sin. And it just absolutely makes no sense to once upon a time, then to go back into sin and put sin back on the throne. And by the way, I was preparing our message for the day, and I, I realized most believers do not see sin in that light. 
Most people don't look at sin as being something that, like a cat, is ready to, to lunge on a mouse in a field. You can drive through the, the county here in our county, and you'll see cats out in the field at the end of the day. And those cats will sit there for a long time. And what they're doing is they're waiting for a, a small or a large mouse, whichever your appetite would encourage, to run through the grass. And when they do, a cat will jump like a fox, will go almost like straight up and then straight down and jump on that thing. It's like a, you know, like a lunge, like a prey. And may I say to you, Christians don't see sin that way. They see sin as, as I guess we talk about it, not slavery. They see it as the ultimate freedom. I can do whatever I want to do. And they think they can do it. They think it won't hurt them. They think it won't affect them. They think it won't have any long-term effect. But what we need to understand is this, that sin brings, as it were, a satanic kind of control. And I mean by that, that sin opens the door to your heart because the devil himself is served with every sin you commit. Because so he's still fighting against God Almighty. The very thing he did in the Garden of Eden is to get Adam and Eve to sin against God. He does the same thing with you. So every sin you commit, every sin I commit, he has this devilish control behind it with intent to slap God in the face. And our intent is yours and mine should be to honor the Lord, not humiliate him and embarrass him. And it's also important in verse number 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey. I want you to see the phrase, ye yield yourselves. You see, that's the thing in America we're having a hard time with. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. This verse of Scripture, as far as sin is concerned, and as far as Christians are concerned, this verse of Scripture says, it's our fault. You see, it says right there, ye yield yourselves servants to obey. He's talking about servants of sin. You yield yourself. Nobody forced you to. The devil didn't make you do it. You made a choice. And ye yield yourselves. That makes sin in the believer's life his or her choice, not a forced choice, but our choice. And I say to you, a person's general pattern or practice of life proves that his true and real master who they really are, regardless of what his lips say. So see, I'm not going to listen to your lips service. I'm going to watch your life. And I'm going to see who it is you obey. What does your life reflect in regard to whose will you're following? And that's whose master you're serving. You see, that's a borne out in this verse of Scripture because it uses the word obey. In verse 16, he says, Know ye not that to whom you yield your servants to obey? His servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. You see what his point is? The question that he points you to is, he's wanting you to answer the question, Who do you obey? Who do you obey? When you're faced with a sin, who do you obey? Do you obey the lust of the flesh? Or do you say, no, no, no. No, the scripture says, for me to abstain from every appearance of evil. I'm not going to do that. You have a choice to make. And you'll make it. Whether you're sitting down at a television, a VCR, or looking at a magazine, or whether you're just being unkind and bitter and mean to somebody nearby. The fact of the matter is, you have a choice. And you'll make a choice. And the choice you'll make is, almost as imperceptibly of you're sitting there, you'll follow your master. You'll follow what old sin says to you. You'll follow the master you're really serving. And it won't be a thing of you're trying to act Christian when in fact you're not Christ-like. You'll follow your instincts. You'll be exactly what you are. You can't be anything else. 
And this passage of Scripture is saying that. You are what you are by virtue of who you obey. And that's what this verse of Scripture sets before us. Sin leads to death. Verse 16 says so. It's interesting in verse 21, for the end of those things, verse 21 says, is death. What fruit had he, ye then, in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? By the way, we can't, can't wait to get to that, can you? Things that you were ashamed of? Do you have things in your life that you're ashamed of? He talks about those things. By the way, if you're ashamed of them, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. You won't find many people ashamed of anything in our country today. Man alive. They just say, they aren't ashamed of that. Reading my devotions this week in the book of Jeremiah, and he talked about, and the people were not ashamed and they did not blush. We need to get back to being ashamed and blushing. Yes. We need to get back to a point where we say, boy, that's bad. I, I'm ashamed of that. I'm disgraced by that. But we aren't there yet. We're like a frog in a kittle. We're sort of acceptable to everything because we've seen, heard, thought so much. And this passage of Scripture says you better be careful there because that interjects, that opens the door for sin to come back in, as it were, and take over the headship, the leadership, the mastership in your heart. Verse 23 in chapter 6 also says, For the wages of sin is death. So you see, all through this passage of Scripture, he's saying if you obey the wrong thing, it's going to ruin your life and eventually take it. And indeed, that's exactly what happens. I've said it before from this pulpit. Sin is a counterfeit killer. It promises one thing and a lot of it, and it delivers a whole different package. And nothing in the Bible explains that more fully than the passage in Genesis where the Satan comes down as that serpent and communicates with Adam and Eve. Point it out to you carefully. In chapter 2, in verse number 17, here's what Moses wrote about it. He said, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, listen, thou shalt surely die. Genesis 2, 17. We come over to chapter number 3, in verse number 4 and 5, the Bible says, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Verse number 5, For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You see, Eve was faced with a battle of sin. God said, you will die. Serpent said, you will not die. And the serpent tried to make a case, trying to say, look, you know why God told you not to eat that tree? And you know why he said that you would die if you ate it? Because he knows full well that if you eat this tree, you will be just like him. And therefore, God's unfair, God's unjust, he's un, he's un, un, un uh, whatever else un there is. He's saying this is just not what you ought to obey. You ought to do your thing, and you ought to be independent of this law, and you ought to go do what you want to do. And even in this case, says, you know, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will take a bite of the tree, see if it, maybe it does have some substance to it. And you know the rest of the story. Adam and Eve gave in to sin and died spiritually immediately. And in a little while, they died physically. You see, being a sinner separated from God, you're dead in your sin and trespasses. The Bible declares that. But you're also dying, period. Your moral life is decaying. And whether you know it or not, sin ages people rapidly. Sin ages people tremendously and then there's a little plot of ground that little bit of real estate called a grave that is beckoning you 
want you to notice verse 17 in Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 17, but God be thanked. Well, after he just went through this whole thing about whose servants you are and all that, he said, but there's something I want to thank God for. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. First off, Paul does, a, does what uh, all of us who uh, know the Lord should do from time to time. And that is to step back and, and thank God for uh, the people around you who you care about who've made spiritual progress. That's what he does here. By the way, notice he doesn't thank them. He doesn't say, I want to thank all the Roman Christians. Didn't say that. He says, I want to thank God for what happened in the Roman Christian's heart. And I say this to you. You and I both ought not take for granted the great spiritual blessings that have come our way in our lifetime. You remember who first shared the gospel with you? You remember who first taught you to love the scriptures and to read them and to be faithful to them? You, learn, you, you remember those people who had those impacts on your life to the point and to the degree that you were bettered because of your coming in touch with their life or their ministry? Somewhere along the way, you all just step back and thank God for them. That's what Paul is doing here, thanking God for what God was doing in the life of these Roman believers. And sometimes we take too much for granted. I mean, uh, we just absolutely just say, oh, that's a, that's a right. We're in America. You know, the Bible gets taught and preached here. That's an American right. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of places in America this morning. You can sit for a week and you won't hear any Bible teaching that's real and true and honest. And you'll understand something else. There'll be people being born in this country and die in this country having never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. They are a mission field right here in our back door. I say this to you. Paul the Apostle stops for a moment, realizes what spiritual progress has been made, and he thanks God for it. Spiritual progress is not man-contrived. It's God-directed, and that's what this verse says. Then notice in verse 17 that he says that ye were the servants of sin. And that's important to notice that that's a past tense. Ye were the servants of sin. In fact, that word were is an ongoing reality. That's what they were. Back there, they were just in this ongoing state of being a servant of sin. And the question, I think, is are you now different than you were then? A little different? A lot different? That's what this passage really points up to. Can people tell that Christ is your master? Do people say, to look at you and say, are you still a slave to Satan and to sin? Paul's not just judging these people by their outward behavior, but he says, I know, look at it, verse 17, you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. And by the way, that's what makes the difference in a person's life. You see, salvation begins in the heart, and every step of spiritual progress for the believer starts with obedience from the heart to a Bible truth. When you hear a Bible truth, whether you're going to grow spiritually from that reality or not, it is determined by whether you obey that truth from your heart. When you surrender your heart to that truth, this is true, this is right, and I must obey it. That is, sets in motion the process of spiritual progress and spiritual maturity. When people argue their hearts about a truth, they sit, in, as it were, and puts it on a shelf. That truth won't be any stepping stone to spiritual maturity. But when you face a truth and you come to grips with it and you obey it from the heart, then it leaches out in your life in every aspect of it. And that's what he's going to say here. By the way, this to me is a very interesting section. Verse 17 where he says, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have. Now watch this. Obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. 
the form of doctrine which was delivered. The word form in this context was used of molds into which molten metal was poured. Trying to make a, a bell or something, and you'd pour this molten metal into this form, and it would make a bell. And then you'd break the mold off and take the bell out of it. Interesting, in my King James Bible here, at the bottom of it, it has a, a, a note concerning it, not in this Bible, the one I study Bible in. It has a, a note at the bottom, and it says the translation in there can also be, whereunto ye were delivered. An interesting comparison. I call your attention to that because of two things. One, we know that the New Testament has many references to sound doctrine that's been delivered to us so we can deliver it to another generation. What Paul said to Timothy, you know, these truths you've received, the same commit thou to faithful men. Pass it to another generation. We know the Bible teaches that. But in this context, what I believe this verse of Scripture is saying, the true believer is delivered into the mold of God's truth to change us into Christ's likeness. That's what the verse is saying. Delivered them. This idea of the truth of the Bible is not only saves us, it shapes us. It forms us into God's design for our life. By the way, being a mole, by the way, that is a, a metal mole, you know, the mole you're going to pour this molten metal into, the fact that the Scriptures even refer to themselves in that way, a form of doctrine, carries with it the idea that the truth is unchangeable. That mold will not change. It means very simply that whatever is poured inside that mold conforms to that mold. But that mold will not change. God's Word does not change. The truth of God does not change. It influences life, but life does not influence it. And by the way, that's why as a church, we ought not let the world change us. We ought to set ourselves on the foundation of God's Word and say this is a declared truth and we're not moving off of it. I don't care what the world thinks, likes, or despises. This is where we stand. You see, it changes people. People do not change the Scriptures. And yet in our churches across this country, that's happening all the time. You'll find a pastor who for years may have stood against certain behavior and certain lifestyles, as was called to my attention just yesterday. The word came across yesterday to a, about a pastor who had in the past talked about certain things that he didn't want and challenged the young people of his church not to do related to, to earrings and nose rings and belly button rings and tattoos and all that. And years ago he had said, don't do this. This is not good. Don't be a part of this. This is a bad lifestyle. And just a few days ago in his pulpit, he said, you parents are getting too caught up in this thing. You ought, to, you ought to let that go. You ought to accept that. That's okay. Let your kids do all those things. What happened? Did God change and send him a notice that there's an appendix to the Scripture uh, he used once upon a time to preach against such behavior? Did he get some note in the mail from God of heaven and saying, Look, now you can tell the people, go ahead and do that. That's okay now. You'll forgive me, but God never changes, nor does his word. And when we get to a point where we start changing things because people change. Well, people accept it now. And it's okay to accept Oh, no, it's not. Because this mold is not made by people. This is God's word. And it may break people, but it won't, move, it won't change itself. And I get excited knowing that what I preach is not something that will be different tomorrow than it was 50 years ago, 100 years ago. It will forever remain the same. Somebody translated it. In fact, I think it's a Phillips translation, which I don't normally and would not use. But I found this interesting. He wrote, "Don't let this is Romans 12, 1. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your mind from within. You see, the Bible truth here is to which the believer is to submit him and herself in Jesus Christ stamps and marks that believer with a true image 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the molding is all about. That's what the doctrine is all about. That's what we teach around here. The doctrine of God's Word is not just to fill up time. It is to mark and to stamp and to mold the people of the New Life Baptist Church family into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It can't be done in one visit. It can't be done even in one service. It is amazing to me that people think that you can go home, watch television all week, rub shoulders with every Tom, Dick, and Harry, with every pagan philosophy, and somehow, some way, come to church for 45 minutes and clean all of that off the screen. You'll forgive me. That ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. You're going to have to do better than that. You're going to have to understand the priority of God's Word, God's church, and God's people, and God's mission if it's ever going to make any difference in your life or in your children's life or your loved one's life, your neighbor's life, or anybody else's life for that matter. It is not going to happen with us getting an instant fix of religion on Sunday morning and thinking, hey, I'm right up there, buddy. I'm telling you right now that's not going to work because this passage of Scripture... Here's the idea that uh, God wants to form you. He wants to change you into His likeness. And He's going to do that with His Word. And the more contact you have with His Word, the more faithfully, regularly that'll happen. And sometimes those changes are not easy. Sometimes they're very hard. Look at verse number 18. Being then made freed from sin, or free from sin, He became the servants of righteousness. That's an interesting thing because that's real freedom. You ought to mark that. Verse 18. That's real freedom. That is real freedom. Real freedom is defined by someone as the ability to fulfill one's destiny and to function in terms of one's ultimate goal. I don't know a better way to explain it than to say that trains run on tracks. You get that train off that track, it will go absolutely nowhere. You say, oh, but aren't those tracks a little restricted? Yes, they are. Aren't those tracks a little bit uh, 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 bounding? Yes, they are. But that train won't get anywhere if it gets off of them. And that's the way it is in the Christian life. It is absolutely essential that we understand. You get off track spiritually, and you'll go nowhere spiritually. And this verse of Scripture, interesting, being, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. That's an interesting thing because later he says, when Christ, in fact, it's already stated that when Christ died on the cross, he paid your sin debt. He paid the penalty for your sin. If you're here this morning and you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I've got great news for you. Somebody's paid your sin debt. You had a debt you could not pay. He paid one he did not owe. And he paid it for you. So your sin debt has been paid. Now whether or not you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, that's between you and him. But the fact is he's paid his end of it. The penalty's paid. But he also did something else. He provided the provision for you to say no to sin. That's how you're free from sin. I'm free from sin because the bondage of sin is broken and I have the provision that's been given to me in Christ's death on the cross when he died to pay my sin debt. He provided for me the ability to say no to sin. I'm not a slave to sin anymore. He took sin off the throne of my life and I don't intend to put it back. But he did a third thing. He did a third thing. He did something that we just take for granted and never think a thing in the world about it. And verse 18 brings it to light. I read again. Verse 18. Being then made free from sin, ye became what? Servants of righteousness. You know what else it says in the text? Look down, if you would, at verse number 22. In verse 22 it says, But now being made free from sin and become what? Servants of God. You know when you really get to pre really serve the Lord? 
is when you come to grips with the truth that you've been made free from sin. That's what he's saying in this whole context. People want to come and serve the Lord with a whole lot of baggage in their life. They want to serve the Lord. They want to jump on the bandwagon and do something for God. And they got all this baggage of sin that they have not accepted. They, they just think they have to do it. You know, I, I've got this bad habit, but, you know, no, you don't have to. You don't have to. And as far as I'm concerned as a pastor, the thing we need to understand is you want to be a servant of God, you need to understand, one, your sin has been paid for. The penalty is already paid in full. Two, a provision has been made for you to say no to sin. And three, because of the early two of those facts, now you can serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do something for Him. When you embrace those truths. And that's exactly what this passage of Scripture is. Listen, I close with a question. Whose slave are you? You're somebody's. You're somebody's. And I didn't make that statement without authority. The Bible teaches us clearly that we are all somebody's slaves. If I were to judge and you were to judge and we somehow just looked over your life for the last week, everything you did... And we put it on a CD or a video and we brought it to the auditorium in the New Life Baptist Church and we put a screen right up here and we shot that whole video on that screen and watched your every action, your every mood, your every statement, your every uh, phone call, everything you did this week. What would we judge about whose master you have? What would your life say about who your master is? You see, you can talk a good talk and live a dirty one. Talk is cheap. Anybody can do it. Life is tough. Life is tough. Where the rubber meets the road, reality becomes that thing which is, not that which is talked about. And in the context of what Paul deals with in this passage, he's saying, look, we can tell who's servant you are. We can tell whose master you have by whose will you obey. Whose will did you obey this week? Your own? The Lord's? This morning you need to face the reality that you may have not traded masters. You see, if the pattern and practice of your life is more one of sin than salvation or separation from sin, I ought to tell you something. Is your mind constantly thinking on sinful things? That's all you can think about is sinful things? Your behavior reflects sinful lifestyle? My friend, I'm not trying to be unkind, and I'm not trying to play God. I'm trying to tell you what God has said. That reveals in your heart who your master is. It's not easy to be in this world and to operate in this world and be pure, clean, and holy. It's a job. It's a task. But we have certain provisions that have been made for us that we can abstain. Do we sin? Sure we'll sin. And we'll keep sinning as long as we're in this flesh. But it ought not be the thing that consumes you. And ought not be the thing that all the time you're having to get up and brush yourself off and, and confess and confess and confess. You ought to grow from it. There ought to be a growing process. And this passage of Scripture is dealing with that ideal. But it's dealing with it from the ideal of who do you obey? Whose will do you obey? Do you really know Christ? Or is yours just lip service? If you're a true Christian, are you trying to impact the lives of other people and tell them the good news that Christ not only died for them, but he also 
made a provision for them. Their penalty of sin is paid. The provision has been made for them to say no to sin. And also a provision has been made that they can become the servants of God, work and serve and be fruitful in the field. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the great freeing truths that it gives to us. And this morning in this service, there may be people who have never believed on you as Savior and Lord. And Father, I pray for the salvation of that person even now, this very moment. I pray as we come to this invitation, I pray you'll speak to their hearts and work in their lives. And I pray that before they leave here today, they'll come to a full confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be certain of it, confident of it. And I pray for folks who ought to come because they have been saved to follow the Lord in believer's baptism and make confession about that. Or those who ought to come for church membership or those who ought to come to pray concerning relationship with you and the sin that you may have brought to the forefront of their minds and their hearts. The point is, whatever the problem is, we need to address it. And we need to address it now. America needs godly Christians. This country needs praying Christians. This country needs faithful believers in local fellowships to be faithful there and to serve the Lord in that ministry to affect and impact the lives of their neighbors and friends and community people. This is no time for professing to believers to be hidden in houses. It's time for the soldiers to march. So I pray this morning that you'll work in every heart of every life of every person in this building today and deliver the truth of the message in Romans 6 to every heart and help them to understand it and grasp it and may it change their lives forever. Speak to us now as we wait before you and bless this invitation to your own honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me, please? 282 in your hymn book, 282, and we sing the first stanza of Just As I Am. If God has spoken to your heart, we invite you to come. If you need to trust Christ as Savior, we have folks who'd be delighted to take the opportunity take you to a side room, counseling room, and show you from the scriptures how you can be saved. We'll do whatever we can to help you embrace the truth that you've heard today. So the invitation is open to you, and I encourage you to come, even as we sing. Page 282, verse 1. Let's sing together. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Thank you very much. We shall not tarry as we often don't around here. We believe the Holy Spirit works in His own way and in will. If He wants you to move, then we believe that's between you and Him and not between me and you. So let me thank you for being with us, and may the Lord bring you back to the evening service tonight. Brother Brian Butler will be speaking, and then after the service, of course, we'll assure you're getting out of the parking lot if you need to before the fireworks begin. Also, let me remind you to keep praying for Riley Noah Burton. Pray for him and for his need, and for Becky now and Brian who are together at Riley's Hospital. Please be praying for them that the Lord will undertake in the need of that child this morning and this afternoon. Let us pray together as we go. Our Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had to be in Sunday school today and now in worship service. We thank you and praise you for the opportunity to be under your word and around it and around your people. And thank you again for our nation. Thank you for your blessing upon it. And thank you for shedding your grace upon it. And thank you for the salvation that's ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless now, I pray, Father, as we go through the afternoon, prepare and make ready for the evening service. Bless Brian as he opens the scriptures to us. And, Father, I pray that you'll get honor and glory to yourself through our lives this week that's ahead of us. 
and each of us who have a place and a part in it, help us to serve you with faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.